Introduce our next speaker, Slavoj Žižek, is uh, kind of also needs no introduction. He's a philosopher and psychoanalyst, professor of philosophy at the European Graduate School EGS, senior researcher at the Institute for Sociology and Philosophy at the University of Ljubljana, global distinguished professor of German at NYU, international director of the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities, and founder and president of the Society for Theoretical Psychoanalysis. He's written countless um, books and, uh, and essays. He's called the most dangerous philosopher in the West. He's a Lacanian rock star. Who can you say that about? Um, he is the, be called the Elvis of cultural theory. Please join me in welcoming Slavoj Zizek. close to Balkan. So, if you want to start exchanging insults, I can be extremely brutal, I always win. <laughs> okay. Uh, rage, rebellion, a new power. It looks like a kind of a dialectical triad of revolutionary process. First, there is a chaotic rage. People are dissatisfied, they show it in a more or less violent way, without any clear goal or organization. Then, when this rage gets organized, we get a rebellion, with a more or less clear awareness of who the enemy is and what is to be changed. Finally, if rebellion succeeds, the new power confronts the immense task of organizing a new society. Remember the wonderful anecdote about the exchange between Lenin and Trotsky just prior to the October Revolution. Lenin said, what will happen with us if we fail? Trotsky replied, and what will happen if we succeed? The problem is that we almost never get this triad in its logical progression. First chaotic rage, then normal progress, organization, and so on. Chaotic rage gets diluted or turns into rightist populism. Rebellion succeeds, but loses steam and gets compromised in multiple ways. The never-ending story of the contemporary left is that of a leader or party elected with universal enthusiasm, promising a new world, Mandela, Lula, Tsipras, and so on. But then sooner or later, usually after a couple of years, they stumble upon the key dilemma. Does one dare to touch the capitalist mechanisms? Or does one decide to play the game? If one disturbs the mechanisms, one is very swiftly punished by market perturbations, economic chaos, and the rest. Just think about Venezuela today. Uh, this is why rage is not only at the beginning, but also at the end, the outcome of failed emancipatory projects. Just remember the French 
suburban riots of autumn 2005, with thousands of cars burning and a major outburst of public violence around Paris mostly. What strikes the eye in these protests is, or was, the almost total absence of any positive utopian prospect. If May 68 was a revolt with a utopian vision, the 2005 revolts in France were outbursts without even a pretense of having a vision. If the oft-repeated commonplace that we live in a post-ideological era has any sense, it is here. The fact that there was no program in the burning Paris suburbs is in itself a fact to be interpreted. It tells us a great deal about our predicament. What kind of universe is it that we inhabit, which the universe which celebrates itself as a society of choice, but in which the only option available to the enforced democratic consensus is a blind acting out. But are such violent demonstrations not often unjust? Many of my liberal, not friends, acquaintances claim, but listen, when people demonstrate, burn cars, whatever, uh, isn't, this isn't this violent? Do they not hurt the innocent? I claim that it's a much more complex situation. I claim that when we witness these outbursts of rage, we have something that Walter Benjamin called divine violence, which is in a way brutally unjust. It is often something terrifying, <laughs> not a sublime intervention of divine goodness or justice. For example, to be brutal, a left liberal friend of mine from the University of Chicago told me of a sad experience. When his son reached high school age, he enrolled him into a high school just north from University of Chicago campus, close to a black ghetto, with a majority of black kids. Not long after, his son was returning home with bruises or broken teeth. So what should he have done? Put his son into another school with a white majority or keep him in this school? The point is that this dilemma is wrong. It cannot be solved at this level, since the very gap between private interest, safety of my son, and global justice bears witness to a situation which has to be overcome. And the same holds for Palestinians stabbing Israelis with knives. Maybe, I think, another case of divine violence. Uh, of course, to be clear. I, if, let's say I am an ordinary citizen then, I walk around Jerusalem, which I don't do regularly, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, somebody mistakes me for a Zionist, whatever, attacks me with a knife. Let's not bullshit. Of course I would have, I don't know, run away, defended myself or whatsoever. Of course I would have experienced that as an injustice. But my point is, nonetheless, I don't have the moral right to simply condemn this as a crime. Amen. Uh, so let's jump now from this rage to the opposite extreme, the construction of the new power. I think the most terrifying 
incident which symbolizes our shared predicament is the famous moment, when was it? Uh, three quarters of a year ago, we remember this sudden shift of Syriza government in Athens. First, the triumphant vote, no, in the referendum, literally a day after, total capitulation to Brussels. So what happened? There is a standard narrative with which I don't agree, but I will tell you this narrative. The idea is the thing began to go wrong already years ago in the summer of 2012, when after the elections, it became clear that at some point Syriza will take power. At this moment, the Tsipras leadership made a series of decisions, not only about the party line, but also about the type of party they needed. They advocated the transformation of Syriza from a coalition of disparate organizations and civil movements into a unified centralized party. The great number of members of its central committee made it sure that de facto decisions were made in advance in the narrow informal circle around Tsipras, the paracenter of power. No wonder then that the surrender to the Brussels pressure was decided by this paracenter and it shocked Syriza's popular base, which mostly withdrew into despair and passivity. So I was told that now all this popular base, civil movements and so on is just at, at a distance. And again, we are back at rage. There is no clear counter-program and so on. However, I don't totally agree with this narrative. Why not? One has to be very clear when one talks about the loss of contact with the social movement base. It is all too easy to reproduce here the old opposition of presence and representation. Presence are authentic social movements, and then representation is the alienated, ossified party mechanisms, state apparatuses, and so on and so on. So the idea is that the left in power should at all costs keep alive its popular roots. I think that this mantra, when the left is in power, they should keep their link with popular social movements and so on, covers up the true problem. How to transform state mechanisms, how to make them function in a different way, instead of just supplementing them with popular pressure from below. In short, it seems clear that, apart from two great models, social democratic acceptance of parliamentary democracy and the Stalinist state, the left has no other practical mode to offer. All the talk about active popular participation, self-organization of the people or multitude in social movements, I think ultimately serves to obfuscate this lack. Is then today's radical left really, I repeat here a wonderful formulation by Alberto Toscano, condemned to fight tooth and nail for social democracy to prove it cannot work? I found this an extremely tragic predicament. Even some of my well-known friends, maybe he was sometimes here, Fred Jameson, advocate this line. He said, the left cannot do anything today. All we can do is support social democratic measures, 
knowing well in advance that they will fail and hoping that people will learn something from this failure. My God, if this is all that we can do, then let's close the store. <laughs> What's the problem for me? In the final scene of a film which was popular even by, the, by some leftists, Tony Negri loved it, I know. You probably saw it. V for Vendetta. You remember the ending of the film? Thousands of unarmed Londoners wearing Guy Fawkes masks march towards Parliament without orders. The military allows the crowd to pass and the people take over. And then, end of the film. A nice ecstatic moment, but I'm tempted to say, so what? I'm ready, now I talk, I'm ready to sell my mother into slavery in order to see a movie with the title V for Vendetta, part two. <laughs> what would have happened the day after the victory of the people? How would they reorganize their daily life? That's what we should remember today more than ever. These cheap insurrections where we have, you know, we all cry with them, it's so wonderful. Oh my God, 1,000, oh sorry, 1 million people on Tahrir Square, on Gaza Square. My heart is with them, we cry together. I, I'm more and more totally non-interested in this. What interests me is the morning after. What happens then? How will we change everyday life? How will people feel the change? If not, then if we don't confront openly this question, then we are ultimately just playing the game of those in power. Especially in France, they know very well, every respectful right-wing politician always likes to say, you know, in 68 I was on the barricades, you know. Like, you know, you cannot be a proper right-winger if your, as they say in France, your heart is on the left, but your money should be in the right pocket. <laughs> and again, this is for me the big problem. But if the picture is so bleak, why then not call it a day and resign ourselves to modest reformism? Okay, liberal democratic capitalism is the only game in town. Let's try to make it a little bit better. The problem is, I think, that Global capitalism confronts us with a series of tensions, antagonisms, whatever you call them, uh, which cannot be controlled or even contained within the frame of capitalist democracy. The only true question today is, do we endorse the predominant acceptance of capitalism as a fact of nature, or does today's global capitalism contain strong enough antagonisms to prevent its indefinite reproduction? And my answer is, there are antagonisms. When they claim we who still insist on some utopian, for me not, vision of communism, my answer is a very simple one. Those who think that things can go on indefinitely, the way they are now, maybe with a little bit of accommodation, but basically, you know, as they tell a child when it's a scary night, don't look too much around, just look straight, go on. Those, they are the true utopians, I think. I mean, uh, they are the utopians. Real 
Ethiopia is in power today. Which are these antagonisms? I will just repeat my old mantra, but it's good to be clear at this point. They all concern what Marx called and others commons. First, there are what maybe we should call the commons of culture in the broadest sense, the so-called immaterial capital, the immediately socialized forms of cognitive capital, our means of communication and education, not to mention, of course, the financial sphere with the absurd consequences of uncontrolled virtual money circulation. The only way capitalism is able to reproduce itself in these conditions is through the regression from profit to rent. This is, I think, the key economic fact today, which is not taken into account enough. Take a very simplified example, somebody like Bill Gates. How did he become the wealthiest man? I don't think it works through the concept of exploitation. I don't even think he, compared with other big owners, capitalists, exploits much more than others his working. No, it's rent. That's the tragedy. Bill Gates controls, more or less, not quite monopolistically, but more or less, one of our commons. If I exchange email with you, if I participate in common space through internet and so on, I have to pay him rent. Which is why, did you ever ask yourself how is the price of Microsoft uh, programs determined? It's not in the old profit capitalist way. It's not so much it costed me to produce it and so on. It works. It's based on rent. We are paying again rent. These antagonisms uh, uh, are very interesting because they, I claim, what is already common knowledge, they, at the same time, they bring us close, they open up a gate towards a certain type of communism. I mean here something very simple. It's described more and more, even in popular books, like take Paul Mason's The End of Capitalism, which deals with the threat posed to capitalism by the digital revolution. What are we are witnessing today is radical reshaping of our familiar notions of work, production, value, an economy based on markets and private ownership gradually disappears. So new forms are already emerging. Parallel currencies, cooperatives, self-managed online space, even Wikipedia, and so on. I claim that one can even mobilize here the most traditional Marxist couple of forces of production and relations of production. With digitalization, capitalist relations of production can no longer contain the development of the forces of production. Intellectual property is the death toll of capitalism. You simply cannot do it. And uh, this is one opening where, again, I simply think that at an imminent level of economic organization and so on, in the long term, capitalism will not be able to deal with this. Then we have, of course, the commons of second commons, of external nature. Uh, ecology, we are threatened by uh, uh, pollution, exploitation, and so on and so on. This is also an important political and ideological struggle. 
Because not only are every trash card from Amy, not only are often challenges here denied, like there is no global warming, or at least we are not sure, and so on and so on. The problem is that ideology at its purest we encounter it here, much more than those idiots who deny global warming. I fear those who fully endorse it, but give it a, however you call it, conservative right-wing twist, like they say, oh, whenever, like to be brutal, like, sorry for this tasteless metaphor, you know, Goebbels said, whenever I hear blah blah culture, I reach for my gun. Well, whenever I hear mother nature, I reach for my gun. Because there is a very specific ideology here, as if there is a basic homeostasis stability of nature, which we humans, through our hubris, uh, 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 undermined it. No, there is no mother nature. Or if there is a mother nature, she is heavy bitch or whatever. We, there is, we have no place, that's what I'm trying to tell you, we have no stability to return to. It's a much more tragic predicament. Then, the commons of internal nature, biogenetic inheritance. Are you aware of what is going on now with biogenetic technology? The creation of a new man in the literal sense of changing human nature is already a realistic prospect. At some stupid conference, I encountered one of the high bosses of uh, uh, Chinese biogenetic development, and he gave me, the translated into English, the program of social goals and so on of biogenetics in China, and already the first sentence tells it all. It says, the goal of development of biogenetics in China is the regulation of biological and psychological welfare of the Chinese people. So can you imagine what will happen if biogenetics is left to private corporations and state? Then, last but not least, of course, the commons of humanity itself, of our shared social and political space. The more capitalism gets global, the more new walls and apartheid are emerging, separating those who are in from those who are out, not, even not to mention new geopolitical tensions. This is, I think, a beautiful paradox today. Global capitalism, commodities circulate freely, but people, I hope you notice it, circulate less and less freely. It is this reference to commons, because you see, in all these cases, commons are threatened. It is this reference to commons which justifies the continuing reference to communism. It enables us to see the progressive enclosure of the commons as a process of proletarization of those who are thereby excluded from their own substance. However, <coughs> in the series of four antagonisms outlined, the one between the included and the excluded is the crucial one. Without it, all others lose their subversive edge. Ecology turns into a problem of sustainable development. Intellectual property turns into a complex legal challenge. Biogenetics turns into an ethical issue. 
and then you know you have all this debate with Catholic Church and so on. Is man is a man just a biological machine whom we can manipulate, or does man have an eternal soul? And I hope you noticed here you have ideology at its purest. I hope you noticed this paradox: how the same Catholics who claim man has an immortal soul oppose biogenetic or other intervention into our brain. They are totally non-consequent here. My God, listen, if I believe that I have an immortal soul, wouldn't it be logical for me to say, fuck you, uh, do whatever you want with my brain. I'm not there. Um, you know, it's, uh, okay, we don't have time to go into this. Just so that you can see what happens here. So, one can sincerely fight for ecology. One can defend a broader law of intellectual property. One can oppose copywriting of genes without confronting today's form of class struggle between those included and those excluded. Corporations like Whole Food and Starbucks continue to enjoy favor among some leftists, even if they engage in anti-union activities. The trick is to sell products with a progressive spin. You buy coffee made with beans bought at above market, at fair market, value, you drive hybrid vehicle, you buy from companies that provide good benefits for their customers, and so on and so on. In short, without this ultimate reference to class struggle, we may well find ourselves in a world in which Bill Gates is the greatest humanitarian fighting about poverty, and Rupert Murdoch the greatest environmentalist. <laughs> it is at this point that refugees those from the outside who want to penetrate inside uh, enter. They bear witness to the commons of humanity itself, threatened by a global capitalism which precisely generates new walls and other forms of apartheid. Uh, what is happening here? In this fight we meet new challenges. Jacques Lacan, my psychoanalytic teacher, wrote that even if what a jealous husband claims about his wife, sorry for this male chauvinist <laughs> example, we can also turn it around, that she sleeps around with other men, even if this is all true, his jealousy is still pathological. Why? Because the true question is not, is his jealousy well grounded? But why does he need jealousy to maintain his self-identity? Along the same lines, for example, one could say that even if most of the Nazi claims about the Jews were true, but of course they are not, but I'm saying provocatively even if, their anti-Semitism would still be and was pathological. The true question is not, wait a minute, uh, Nazis are making all these statements about Jews, are they true? The moment you accept this premise, you are lost. Because the true problem is not, is this true or not? The problem is, why do the Nazis, in order to sustain their, if we may call this, worldview, why do they need the figure of the Jew? And I claim it's exactly the same with the growing fear of refugees and immigrants all around Europe, which is getting worse and worse. The latest news, I don't know, maybe some of you know it even better, but, at, uh, at 5 p.m., the latest news from Austria is that the right-winger narrowly, narrowly did win. Yeah. 
So, you know, this is quite a historic date then. The first, along the line of those cases mentioned by Amy, you know, that for the first time a direct anti-immigrant racist becomes the president of a state. So to extrapolate it to the extreme, even if most of our prejudices about the refugees were proven to be true, they are hidden fundamentalist terrorists, they rape and steal. I'm not saying it's true, quite on the opposite, but I'm saying we shouldn't debate at this level, because even if this were to be true, the paranoiac talk about the immigrant threat is still an ideological pathology. It tells more about us Europeans than about immigrants. The true question is not, are immigrants a real threat to Europe, but what does this obsession with the immigrant threat tell us about today's Europe? So there are two dimensions here we should be kept apart. One is the atmosphere of fear of the incoming struggle against the Islamization of Europe with its own obvious absurdities. Refugees who flee terror are equal with terrorists they are escaping from. The obvious fact that there are among the refugees also terrorists, rapists, criminals, I mean, I mean this in a totally neutral way. Of course there are, but so what? Why, but nonetheless, oh, wait a minute, you see, that's the problem. That's what I'm radically opposed to, and because of this attitude, the right wing is winning, is winning in Europe. If the left doesn't need something, it's this uh, beatification of the refugees. They are good, they are nice people. My God, we are in the reality. We are not in a Frank Capra movie, the worst of Hollywood ideology, where the poor people are always good. You are underestimating the first, the, the horror of poverty. The true horror of poverty is also an ethical one. I'm sorry to tell you, poverty doesn't make noble people. Poverty destroys you also from within. Let me get you an... Hold on, hold on. Uh, uh, so, uh, what I'm saying is that... Uh, uh, that this problem of immigrants, why Europe ex experiences this as a problem, it's strictly because of imminent reasons, I claim. The new economic crisis, uh, the, the, the integration of uh, welfare state, and so on and so on. So a suspicious case always finds what it is looking for. Proofs are everywhere, even if half of them are proven to be fakes later. One should especially emphasize this point today when all around Europe, the fear of refugees invasion is reaching paranoiac proportions. People who haven't seen not even one actual refugee react aggressively to the very proposal of establishing a refugee center in their proximity. And this reminds me of the basic paradox also of anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany. I read a study incredibly convincing, which uh, demonstrates how, if you compare the percentage of anti-Semites in Nazi Germany, it was in the, uh, uh, the, the relationship was an inverted one. In parts of Germany where there really were many Jews, anti-Semitism was minimal. The most 
violent anti-Semitism was in on Bavarian countryside and so on, where there were practically no Jews there. So uh, this is why I claim, ah, uh, now you can shout again because now I'm coming to a very problematic part. <laughs> this is why I claim, in Europe now we have a debate. Some people claim, even if refugees are making problems here and there, stealing, rapes, whatever, we should not talk about that publicly because we are only feeding yeah. right-wingers. We should just ignore it and so on and so on. My idea from my personal experience is, yes, nice, you go on this way, you end up like Austria. Mm. I think that, first, this is in such a refined way racist towards their refugees. As if they are children who are not really responsible for their acts and so on and so on. Treat them as other normal people. Debate with them openly. The catastrophe of Europe is that because some big liberal media were under-reporting this, the result was that people, that, that the right-wing anti-immigrant racist propaganda appeared as, you know, only there you learn the truth, and so on and so on. I claim this is a catastrophe. I claim speak openly about it. And then, especially involving immigrants themselves, made it all public. This, this should not be just a debate among us. Are we threatened by immigrants or not? And then you soon get the real picture that it's a minority, that, but also, and this is my point, also that there is a problem here. Not the problem in the sense that we Europeans are right or whatsoever. But let's face it, there are cultural differences. I even don't want to call them cultural. Because when you say culture, you think about something abstract and so on. Culture, or rather, I prefer the term ideology, is something that structures our daily life Ideology is how sexes relate to each other in everyday life. It's not what do you think about women's equality. It's who cooks, who cleans the cows, how do you relate to it. And at all this, at this everyday level, ideology and cultural differences are a real factor, that's all I'm saying, that we shouldn't ignore, which is why Another problematic point, uh, I think I am always suspicious of this excessive self-humiliation of anti-racist Europeans, you know. I claim, again to provoke you, please start shouting, I claim that whenever I hear this attitude, we have a negative version of white man's burden. You know, in the old days it was it's us white men who have the historical destiny to uh, to, to rule the others. Now it is, whenever something is wrong in a third world country, ah, it must be our guilt. There has to be uh, some consequence of colonialism and so on and so on. And I have a friend in South Africa, I will not compromise him by telling his name, who is black, and who got this. He told me, this is the most brutal racism. You white people, you do not even allow us to be really bad. <laughs> Only you can be bad. We are, if we do something wrong, we are like children who were 
seduced by circumstances and so on and so on. Let me give you another attitude of this uh, racism. Did you notice how in the so-called politically correct universe, how they treat ethnic identity? The further you are from wasps, white Protestant men, the more cultural identity is supported. If Native Americans, I call them Indians, why? Because all the Native Americans there know hate the term Native Americans. <laughs> they, at least those that I know, they claim, hey, why Native? You are culture, we are nature or what? And they gave me the most funny, beautiful argument for the term Indians. They told me, at least our name is then a monument to white men's stupidity. You know what the text one of them gave me, a professor in Missoula, Montana, a wonderful treatise about proving how uh, Indians killed more buffaloes and burned more, more forests than all white people together. <laughs> what was his point? His point, he detected the hidden racism of this idea, you know, we white people uh, destroy, exploit nature, uh, uh, other races, especially Native Americans, have a more holistic, organic relationship. Like when they, when they mine a mountain, they first ask the spirit of the mountain for permission and so on, whatever. I mean, uh, my Indian friend uh, is so disgusted by this attitude. He is totally, but what I wanted to say is that with Indians it's okay, with blacks it's also okay. Let them return to their roots and so on and so on. And all white racists like this. The blacks should return to their roots, not come too close to us, no? This is why I claim that, you remember that best-selling book and TV series years ago, uh, 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 Alex, Alexis Haley, I think, The Roots. This is what Hollywood does. What we should do is what Malcolm X did. No, X means no, we are universal subject Without family name, we don't need our roots. The true problem of black emancipation is not find your tribal roots, but how to get rid of your roots even more than white people did. Okay, let me go on. So then, the closest you come to white Protestants, the more it gets problematic. Italians, it's still okay. Uh, Germans, it gets suspicious, no? and so on, but if a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant says, I want my roots, it's a uh, horror, it's fascism, whatever. Why, what's my problem with it? No, no, it is often fascism, I agree. My problem is just that the secret uh, operation at work here is that we white people apparently humiliate ourselves, but secretly, by renouncing our roots, we reserve for ourselves the position of universality. Yeah. The most self-humiliating white man still claims, precisely because I'm prohibited to search for my roots, it means I am universal and I can teach others. And I witnessed this often in the above-mentioned Missoula, Montana. I was at a public debate where Indians rejected the term Native Americans. And the white, politically correct, blah, blah, supporter of them basically started to terrorize them. What are you doing? Don't you know you're humiliating yourself? And so on and so on. Until one Indian friend of mine exploded, like, sorry, will you at least allow us to call ourselves the way 
you want who and clone and clone. So, not to get lost, let me go on. So, uh, uh, when I talk about, which is usually where people start to shout, uh, European emancipatory legacy or critique of Eurocentrism, yes, my position is problematic here, but let me explain to you why. I claim that uh, a critique of Eurocentrism is so popular today. Why? Precisely, it's a sign of something very ominous. What critiques of Eurocentrism, and I know I debated in, for hours in Russia, in China about this, what bothers them is really the European emancipatory legacy, women's rights, equality, universalism, and so on and so on, which they try quickly to dismiss as colonialist legacy. For example, in India, I got into a big fight when I mentioned egalitarianism and criticized castes. And I was told, why do, I terror why do you terrorize us with these colonialist notions, which are equality, women's rights, and so on and so on. So I'm saying that the fact that a critique of Eurocentrism is so popular today is a sign of something which should worry us. It's that today, global capitalism more and more functions much better than with some, with, through a reference to some ancient tradition, corporate tradition, usually. You, you can have capitalism with so-called Asian values, which have nothing to do with Asia, but much more with certain authoritarian patriarchal structure. You have the same, I think that today, again, that's the reality. The most efficient capitalism today is usually this type of mixture of global market capitalism with some traditional structure. For example, in China today, in total contrast to Mao, is Confucianism, which is practically the official ideology. For me, a figure of today, model politician is Modi, the Prime Minister of India, who is at the same time total global market neoliberal and at the same time a Hindu nationalist. This is our future. Russia, Putin, the same game. Uh, 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 Erdogan in Turkey, the same game, which is why now I'm afraid to go to, Ra to, to, to visit Turkey, because I was already attacked there, because I claim, I claim that the opposition between Russia and Turkey is a fake one, they are very similar to each other, and their leader is, I coined this name which condenses the two, Putogan and Erdogan, I claim that Putogan is the new leading figure, this kind of authoritarian figure and so on and so on. So, uh, to make it very clear, this is what makes me suspicious in this sudden acceptability of uh, critique of Eurocentrism. For example, a guy who attacked me ferociously, maybe you know him, uh, uh, Walter Mignon. It's typical that in the text where he attacks me, he totally rejects the term communism as Eurocentric and pleads for a mixture of these local traditions and so on and so on. Uh, uh, I don't think, here you have to make a decision if you really want to be still in any meaningful sense a communist. I claim that today, if we are really to confront, uh, to confront global capitalism, again, sorry, 
The choice is this one. Do you do it from a position of some original, cultural, whatever, ancient tradition, identity which resists globalization? Or do you remain minimally a Marxist? And the ABC of Marxism is the ambiguity of capitalism, what Malcolm X got so nicely, that the only path to freedom is through this zero-level hell of capitalism, which undermines your particular identity. Why? Because I think reference to some original local tradition not only doesn't help fighting uh, global capitalism, but it functions perfectly with global capitalism. Global capitalism more and more uh, functions like that. Another point, problematic for you, uh, uh, as with relation to this uh, mixture of cultures and so on and so on. Okay, another thesis to provoke I was thinking about the most stupid, the most stupid sentence that I ever heard, politically correct or humanitarian, and it came to me that it's this one. I cannot imagine anything more stupid than this. The enemy is someone whose story we were not ready to listen. You know, like, we fetishize the enemy because we are not open to him, but if you read, if you try to understand him, you will see he's not just a monster, and so on, and so on. Well, my first reaction is, nice to know. So, haha, Hitler was our enemy because we didn't really listen to him. <laughs> no, we have to accept here two things. First, of course, not racially, but politically. There are real enemies. And that's why we should read them. For example, although he was a conservative, but Winston Churchill, his big things were that already in 33, he was reading Nazism and became immediately aware this is more dangerous than Soviet Union, than, com than communism and so on. So that's my, that's my first point. I'm here much more of a pessimist. Okay, you listen to the other. And usually they all, the more they are ethnic, involved in ethnic cleansing, I can guarantee you, the more you can find poets writing beautiful poems about that, and so on and so on. The insight of the most brutal criminals is always some kind of beautiful poetry. Why? I know this from my own experience, ex-Yugoslavia. It's not only Karadzic in Bosnia. Every nation had its own Karadzic. Because I don't think that the insight, how you experience your situation, tells some inner truth. No, the insight is your ideological self-experience, which is formed precisely so that it obfuscates the truth of what you are doing outside. I follow here X-Files. The truth is out there, outside. <laughs> the truth of Nazism is in the brutality of what they were doing, not in the beautiful myths that they were telling themselves about what they were doing, and so on, and so on. So, okay, uh, so that I will not talk too long, I will start to cut it short a little bit. Ah, it is against this background of deadlocks of globalization that I want to approach another problem. The ongoing struggle for sexual difference. It's interesting how this functions, how, as many people notice, it's a simple fact, but very important, that the progress of gay struggle, women's rights, abortions, 
that the, as a maybe a reaction to it, we have in many third world countries new homophobia, stronger opposition. And don't underestimate this. For me, the symbol of this is, uh, I don't know if it was rendered public here, but it was an interesting ideological phenomenon. A couple of years ago, on this most stupid, boring popular culture thing that you can imagine, Eurovision context, <laughs> an Austrian, Conchita Wutz, a man with a beard dressed up like a lady, uh, won. And it was incredibly interesting to listen to the reaction of Russia. Putin said, Putin said immediately, in the Bible I read there are two sexes. Now, what is this for a monster? Or, for, or for example, uh, 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 for example, Dmitry Rogozin, uh, vice prime minister, said that Eurovision result showed supporters of European integration their European future, a bearded girl, like this is Europe and so on. And I think that we shouldn't laugh at Boko Haram the way we usually do. They just bring this tendency to its radical conclusion. Think about Boko Haram, you know, the movement in northern Nigeria. What a strange phenomenon this is. It is a kind of a radical political movement. It wants to restructure the entire corrupted society, providing new foundations. And what is the very basic premise of the entire system? Boko Haram, no foreign education for women. Women should remain at their proper place. But what makes things really tragic here, and I know because I met some of their partisans at some debate in London, is that they experience this as their form of anti-colonialism. That's the paradox. They told me at our everyday life level, the destructive effect of globalization, we sense it precisely in how our traditional family structures, traditional communities are disintegrating. And again, the most visible aspect of this for us is women escaping control of their family, leaving family, and so on and so on. So the claim keeping women under control is our form of fighting, uh, of fighting uh, colonialism. Now, isn't this an incredible paradox? How? how thick, fixating sexual difference becomes the ultimate resort of anti-colonialist politics. On the other hand, again, another shouting match maybe, so uh, I don't want to get involved too much into it, but nonetheless it's interesting to note, I think, at how uh, here in the United States and also in Europe, you have now this movement, I know, for uh, ending, uh, ending uh, urinary segregation, toilets, and so on and so on. Of course, I totally sympathize with transgender people and so on uh, in their goal. I just have two problems with this, to be very clear. The first one is that the easiness with which big capital supports this struggle should make us suspicious a little bit. You know that letter of 80, 80 uh, Silicon Valley executives, Zuckerberg, uh, Tim Cook, and so on and so on. They signed a letter where they write, the business community has consistently communicated to law lawmakers that such, such, total support, and so on. 
uh, I can understand why Tim Cook likes to support desegregated toilets, because you know, it's much easier and cheaper to do this than to do something about hundreds of thousands of workers in Foxconn that Apple is uh, exploiting there. But uh, you know what's my problem? Let me be frank. With, uh, I, again, I totally support this struggle. Just there is an ideological mystification in it, I claim. Let me do it in a very simple way. The confrontation, no, sorry, the, let's call it primordial sin to which those who want to abolish segregated uh, toilets is this one. Let's say a transgender person in any sense, a person not at ease with any of the two sexual roles, masculine, feminine, feels anxiety, like, my God, am I not excluded? Where do I belong? The problem is this one. They, okay, sorry for this arrogance. I will say they didn't read properly Lacan. No. In what sense? I think that uh, they confuse sexual difference, or rather antagonism, and prescribed sexual roles. Following Lacan, all our sexual identities are based on the same uncertainty. Anxiety is even part of the most standard sexual identification. My God, to be vulgar. I'm not transgender, but I had this experience all the time. Like whenever I enter, or not always, but often, <laughs> when I enter a male masculine toilet, I ask myself, my God, but how do I know? Am I really a man or whatever? <laughs> I think that this, I'm not joking here, this type of doubt is part of our sexual identity. Sexual identity is not just a simple assignation of roles. Why? Because, I don't have time to go now into Lacanian theory, but the basic premise is that what transgender people really want to get rid of is what Lacan in his jargon calls the anxiety of castration. That you are, by entering symbolic order, you are deprived of something. And I claim you are always deprived, even with most open toilets. This is, I think, the illusion of transgenderism. Of course, okay, the problem is not they feel Segregated, of course, we should do this. But remember that an anxiety, this, if there is a good lesson of psychoanalysis, it's this one. That an anxiety is the most basic part of our symbolic social identity. Basically, you don't know what you are, and to cover this up, you escape into a symbolic identity. And the real problem, the real problem is this. But, okay, let me go on. Why all these problems today? I'm sorry, I speak too long, I will start to try to uh, cut it short a little bit. Uh, uh, I want to address, with a jump, what Amy was addressing, Donald Trump problem. You know, my problem is only this one. I think Trump is disgusting, like, you know, with Trump, I became a racist. Like, is this really one of us? Is this really like No problem with blacks, Jews, Arabs, but I have problem not being racist towards Trump. But my point is another one. I think she's a confused opportunist, and I fear, if you ask me frankly, I wonder if you would agree, 
I, I fear much more somebody like Ted Cruz in the White House. Because with Trump, you can see clearly how he improvises, does disgusting statements, but then he counteracts with, with things which are not totally wrong. He said, we should talk with Russia. He put a much more balanced, uh, suggested a much more balanced attitude in the conflict Israel-Palestine. He said that he wants, basically, didn't he say that he wants uh, uh, health care to be even expanded, he's for a rising minimal wage, and so on and so on. I'm not saying he has any deep convictions. I'm just saying that he's playing a certain opportunistic game, and I don't think there is really some evil person behind. It's much more in somebody like Ted Cruz. Just look at Ted Cruz. Statements. <laughs> uh, so, but nonetheless, something is going on with Trump. What? Uh, do you remember, I always like this example, a wonderful scene from Louis Buñuel's film Phantom de Liberté, Phantom of Freedom, where in one short scene the relations between eating and cheating are turned around. So that, you remember, so that people are, are, are invited to the home and in the living room around the big table, there are toilet seats. They sit there, they defecate, and then one child asks the mother, Mommy, I have to go to that place where? He means eating. No? And mother said, No, 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 don't talk about this publicly. Go there discreetly. And he locks himself in a room and quickly eats sandwiches. No? So I was always thinking at this scene when Donald Trump was unflatteringly compared to a man who noisily defecates in the corner of a room. I claim, but are others really any better? Weren't Republican debates like this scene from, from Phantom de Liberté, where they were all, uh, all defecating there? And I'm referring to this as to a general tendency. It's not just here that Republicans are defecating in, in public. Is Erdogan not doing the same? Is Putin not doing the same? Was Netanyahu not doing the same when he claimed that it was that Husseini, a Palestinian mufti, who suggested to Hitler to, to burn the Jews and so on and so on? I think something is happening here which should effectively worry us. Uh, disintegration, and here we, we, the left, should not be afraid to take over from the right-wingers the topic, which is their favorite topic, the ethical degradation, and so on and so on. What Hegel called Sittlichkeit, not morality, but mors, customs, the thick background of unwritten rules, is effectively lately disintegrating. What was prohibited to say publicly 10, 20 years ago, like, for example, advocating torture, now it's more and more accepted. That's how I read Amy when he said that about Ku Klux Klan and so on and so on. We, uh, and why is this, for me at least, so important? Because uh, you may say, but who cares about manners today? Don't we? Uh, we have much more precious problems. No, manners matter. Here also, as Amy said, words matter. And here, what we need, again, to provoke you, is a new dogmatism. In what sense? Let me take the example of rape. 
I wouldn't like to live in a society where I had to argue all the time that rape shouldn't be done. I would like to live in a society where, at the gut level, spontaneously, as an unquestionable dogma, rape is out of the question. I would very, very much, if I were to be in a society where I would have to argue all the time, again and again, against rape. This reminds me of a wonderful anecdote, it really happened, a show on TV when Ronald Reagan was president. Uh, uh, some journalist in one of the few free conferences that he gave, some journalist asked him about is it true that some of peop the people he invited for his dinner are uh, Holocaust deniers, and he said, no, whenever at my dinner table we, somebody denies Holocaust, I always protest and claim there was, uh, no, uh, there was, there were concentration camps. Of course, the question is, but what kind of people Reagan has for dinner if he all the time has to defend <laughs> them? No, so what I'm saying is that we need dogma, or it's the same with torture. Of course, people torture. I'm here totally open. Who knows, in a totally desperate situation, I would maybe have tortured someone. I cannot guarantee. But it's absolutely crucial to remain hypocritical enough here, not to make it publicly accepted. You know, the moment you legalize torture, legalize in the sense that today is half legalized already, render it publicly acceptable, it, it's, it's, uh, it's the end. Why is this happening? Ah, here we come, and then I will immediately finish to the central problem that I see. This ethical decay, or whatever we call it, yes, and there is another, sorry, wonderful thing here. Did you notice how, if you are old enough, I am, in the 60s, all that upheaval and so on, usually the radical protesters were using dirty words to shock the establishment. Now it's almost the opposite. The more you can go, you go to the right wing, the more they are vulgar. And I think we should proudly accept shamelessly exploit this fact. No, today we, the left, whatever remains of it, are the only true defenders of simple common decency and so on. Mm. We are, we are the ones. Okay, but let me go on quickly uh, to finish. What is happening today is something absolutely incredible. What, uh, what Chomsky called manufacturing consent, the way our democracies effectively function, is falling apart. Because, you know, how our uh, democracies function, one should be open and describe it in a critical way. For many people, they don't really want substantial democracy, they want the appearance of democracy, but with clear indication how you should vote. Consent is manufactured, and don't underestimate this attitude, which I found the most terrifying attitude, which is the attitude of, like I had even a debate with Julian Assange with this, because he still thinks that by bringing out through WikiLeaks, whatever, he's teaching people something new. Basically, I don't think so. In a way, we all knew it. The problem is that we knew
knew it but decided to ignore it. We wanted to act as if we don't know it. People accepted publicly they are against torture, but I claim even maybe the majority of the people would have said something like, okay, okay, some things had to be done, but let's do it discreetly. I want to be able to pretend that I don't know about it and so on and so on. And this is what WikiLeaks and things like this uh, 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 prevent you from doing. So this pro and why is this so ironic? Because when this manufacturing consensus that the reason way, for example, in the United States, the democratic process functioned, but through these two big parties, mechanisms well established. When this is now falling more or less apart, it's so crazy because, you see, that's the perversion of our democracy. Precisely when people have an actual choice, and if, but we don't live in an ideal world, if, the only true election would have been, of course, we all know, Trump versus Bernie Sanders, no? That would have been a real choice. But did you notice, and that's the perversion of, perversion of ideology, how from the hegemonic public opinion by the big media, the moment of real democracy, when people have a real choice, is called the crisis of democracy. <laughs> like it's no longer clear and so on and so on. So again, we should hear, uh, uh, we should hear See this moment of what goes on today, the disintegration of the basic form of manufacturing democratic consent, which ruled in the states, this duality, Republican Democratic Party, in Europe, of course, in Europe also. Here we should be very careful. I am for democracy, absolutely, but Democracy, now another provocation, I wonder how you really react if I tell you this. <laughs> Democracy in itself doesn't mean a lot. Take Europe. If by democracy you mean people are enraged and they express their will against those empowered by free vote, well, then you get a racist anti-immigrant empowerment. And the most ambiguous, disgusting argument that I heard against immigration in Germany was the following one. We are supposed to be a democratic country. How come then that Angela Merkel decided to invite one million people to Germany without democratic consultation? Who gave her the right to do this? And the tragic point is that I'm not saying they are right, I'm absolutely opposed to them. But if Angela Merkel were to call a referendum, unfortunately, I must tell you, at least 60% of the people would have voted against. So what I'm saying is that this doesn't, you know, like my position here is radical. Angela Merkel was right, but I draw the conclusion from this. We shouldn't fetishize democracy. There are moments where you, when you have a certain ethico-political position, for example, immigrant rights and so on, you should even enforce it in a non-democratic way. And I, I think that not simply the majority is not always right and so on and so on. We see this in Europe today. Here I have a disagreement with my good friend Varoufakis. He said in Europe, you know, this DM, democratization of Europe, but I told him, 
Is he aware he blames this uh, centralized European anonymous bureaucracy for screwing the Greeks? But if the process were to be transparent, Greece would have fared even worse. I know from my friends in Brussels who told me uh, many politicians from different European countries were able to exert a pressure to be more gentle towards Greece because it was done discreetly. The moment they have to vote publicly, they knew that they were under pressure from their own population to be tough towards Greece. Because you cannot imagine how pervasive this attitude was, you know, lazy Greeks, blah, blah, we spent money of them, why? So this doesn't mean, of course, I am against uh, democracy. This nonetheless means that, you know, we have to change democracy itself. To talk about, like today in Europe, my God, to talk just about transparency, people's will should be heard. Unfortunately, today in Europe, this means anti-immigrant populists are in power. So, the problem is a very real one. So what should we do today? Okay, now I'm really at the end. I claim that we should avoid both tracks. One track would be this social democratic simple reformism, forget the big goals, just let's do it modestly, this, that. The other one, which is also false, is a kind of an abstract radical position. We need to wait for the revolution, we cannot do anything, we just have to wait for the big crisis, and so on and so on. Well, you wait, and then when there is a crisis, usually the new fascism will be. But even there, I have problems. For example, <laughs> sorry if I made this the two, but it's important. It's very popular to say in Europe, to designate these anti-immigrant populists simply as new fascists, or fascism is winning in Europe. No, this is typical manner of the worst traditional left, when, when they see something that they don't really understand, they don't have a good theory of it, the easiest way is to apply the old formula, oh, it's fascism. No, the symptom of what is going on now in Europe is, maybe you remember him, he was killed, I think, some 10 years ago. Tim Fortuyn, the Dutch anti-immigrant politician. You know why he is such a paradox? Because he was, at its purest, the paradox of uh, anti-immigrant political correctness. His opposition to immigrants was not, oh, they are, uh, they are, was not that they are a threat to our European culture and so on. No, it was we want to live in a democratic country where gays, lesbians should be free, abortion and so on, and they are a threat to this. It was, and the, what I claim simply is that the problem is real. It's an extremely important problem. To, if we don't succeed in bringing these two fights somehow together, the fights of the immigrants and so on, for their rights, and our fight for women's rights and so on and so on, then we are lost. And that's a mega tragedy today, because from both sides we get problems. On one side we get what I already mentioned to you, how sometimes 
struggle against feminism is perceived as anti-colonialist struggle. And not even without reasons. Nancy Fraser, I think, published a year ago a wonderful book about how mainstream fe American feminism was co-opted by neoliberalism and so on. There are problems here. So again, what can we do? We wait for the revolution. Okay, we have to be ready. Things will explode. But what to do now here? I claim that the worst thing is to do nothing, just to wait. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to be good strategic thinkers. We have to insist on particular issues, but those issues which have a potential to unleash, to set in motion further changes. And we can be here very modest. This is why, with all my criticism of Obama and so on, I think that his idea of universal health care, it was a compromise, I know, but this is maybe one good thing he did. Why? Because it's a totally acceptable demand. Most of European states have it, Canada has it, so you cannot accuse him of being communist or whatever, but nonetheless it's obviously something that is non-acceptable for today's predominant American ideology. You know that Republicans brought him to Supreme Court or whatever and so on and so on. So what I'm saying is that we should just insist on specific demands, on this, on that, which may appear, and they should appear, totally innocent. But we will discover that in order to do this, you will have to do more and so on and so on. We shouldn't be ashamed to appear social democratic. The lesson here is Syriza. You know, people don't notice that, Varoufakis knows this very well, that the program of Syriza was something that 50 years ago in Europe, it would have been not even a radical, but a very modest central social democracy. And today, so in order to demand today what uh, it was part of the century social democracy 50 years ago, you are supposed to be a radical left. So let me just now really conclude with a simple metaphor uh, from what I like, which are uh, old science fiction movies. You know, this idea, you are in a room, many buttons, and you press the wrong button button and you think nothing, just the light will go on, but then the whole room starts to fall apart or whatever. <laughs> Reality. I think we should find demands like this. Specific demands which may appear modest, but since our system is getting more and more ossified in a neoliberal way, if we insist on this demand, more will appear, more will appear, and so on. So to conclude with the Hegelian paradox, Hegel always emphasized how the truth only emerges through illusion. I would have said this, yes, our goal should be radical transformation of society. But if you say this directly, it is meaningless. It means you just sit and wait. No, we should begin with modest demands, with choices which if you are a radical revolutionary Marxist, may appear wrong, illusion. But they will, if we insist on them, it will be more and more and more. In other words, we should not be afraid
to endorse what I ironically call wrong choices, wrong in the sense of naive, moderate demands. But they should be well chosen. By beginning this, we get more and more and more. Uh, this is, I think, the only Marxist way. That's how I read Jacques Lacan, who wrote, interpretation is not tested by a truth that would decide by yes or no. Interpretation unleashes truth as such. It is only true in as much as it is truly followed. This is, I think, what Marx meant by his thesis 11. It's not we should not interpret the world, but the true interpretation is not the one which is simply more in accordance with the object, but it is the one which unleashes change in its addresses. And that's why being fully aware of his ideological limitations and so on and so on, I still, from what I know, support Bernie Sanders. Because it's easy to play the game, oh, he's naive, social democrat, whatever. But he triggered a process. He triggered change, reached many people. And many things will happen there more and more. It's absolutely crucial to get things moving. And precisely in today's time, with the rise of the new right, racism, and so on and so on, we should never forget that what Benjamin said, that behind every fascism there is a failed revolution. That is to say, this disintegration of today's, uh, uh, of the mode of manufacturing consent, exploited wonderfully by the, wonderfully in a terrifying way, but the populist racist right, also opens up a space for us. And it all depends on us, will we use this chance or not. Of course, times are dangerous. Times are extremely dangerous today. There may be a world war, whatever, but we shouldn't be afraid of it, because I remain a Maoist here. You know, with all problems with Mao, my favorite saying, which is now totally unmentionable in China, is, you know, there is great disorder under heaven, so the situation is excellent. There is great disorder today in American ideological machinery. It's our chance. Thanks very much.
Use the mic, you're better off with the mic. It's the 100th anniversary of the Easter Rising, which they did not think they were going to win or take power, but they knew that what mattered was to act, and it opened up all kinds of spaces, um, and even in so-called losing, they, they fought. You know who wrote a wonderful text to me, incredible text, short text by Lenin, who said, he defended Easter Uprising against all those radical leftists who said, but this is even Catholic churches behind and, and uh, Irish nationalism. And Lenin wrote a wonderful text where he said, it doesn't matter, it started, it triggered a movement. And I think that's the way we need to think now. And I also like this idea of, you know, there's so many things I'm reminded of in, in what you're talking about. One is this new study that came out that showed that Indians don't actually give a crap what the Washington, D.C. team calls their uh, uh, football team because it's not all about what white people do. It's not all about what the NFL does um, in terms of their own identity and, and how they see themselves. Um, and then also this... Uh, idea of the Boonwell film, I think this is fantastic. The Boonwell film that you were that uh, yeah, you yeah, referenced. Yeah, yeah. No, um, this was my association when I watched a Republican debate. Totally, yeah. <laughs> Just cheating there. And uh, you know, I've heard it said that um, that uh, if we lived in a society where eating was as repressed as sexuality is, um, you might have a little bit of uh, loosening up around the edges, um, but the idea of a restaurant would be the most obscene thing in the world, you know, if eating was the way, uh, you know, sex is. Anyway, um, what but we'd like to do is ha open up to the uh, questions, so how about... people back who want to I hear some, heard Great. some sounds. How about folks, like, is this the line, have you guys self-organized into a line, is that what this is? Okay, would you self-organize into a line and then we'll, um, you know, have questions? Many provocative things said, I assume people are gonna... Um, she's not here, she, she had to leave, so... I have a question here. Yeah. Question here. Okay, great. Um, thank you. I really enjoyed your comments. Can we, they're asking if you want to repeat the question? Maybe we should put a mic there and have a line so that. Uh, yeah, here you go. How about, yeah, I'll hold it and you just go ahead and I'll be the mic. Yeah, uh, um, I really appreciated your comments. Um, at one point you said, I thought something very interesting and useful, which is. Um, trying to bring together um, the politics of, uh, I'm not going to get it exactly, but transformation and defending immigrants or, or refugees. And I'd like you to elaborate on that because I think many people who are not anti-immigrant nevertheless would acknowledge that there's an extreme tension in, 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 in advancing an agenda of social democracy between being able to achieve some of those goals for a polity while at the same time having to accommodate um, anyone who may be in need of moving um, to another country. So if you see what I'm getting at, if you could speak to this very practical tension between meeting the needs of an, uh, of a, of an exploited domestic population while at the same time arguing for the uh, uh, pro-refugee uh, um, uh, settlement and, and accommodation that you're arguing for. Uh, this here, okay, 
I'm getting into dif difficult, how do you call it, stormy waters for me, no? But uh, this is why I made a totally crazy proposal for which I was already physically attacked, militarization. I, of course, don't mean the army should protect Europe. I don't give a damn about that. I always repeat, if there is anything worth protecting, no, if there is, if Europe is, does have some authentic emancipatory legacy, then the only real threat to it are today's protectors of Europe, anti-immigrant populists and so on. They are the real threat to Europe. If people like this take power, Europe, the Europe of, I don't know, human rights, whatever you call them, I know these notions are problematic, uh, 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 it's over. What I'm saying, uh, what I'm, uh, what I'm saying is this. I don't know why this was done, but I was shocked. I think it was part of a racist plot to allow this uncontrolled flow of immigrants through uh, Balkan countries to Germany. The result was totally predictably catastrophic. There was paranoia, fear, and rumors were spreading. It would have been so easy to do something like you mobilize military so that at least they can do something useful. You establish uh, reception camps in Turkey, Syria, Libya. You process refugees, air bridges to Europe. It would have been so easy to do this. I still don't get it why it happened in such a way. The only explanation I have is a moderately paranoid one. It's that somebody really wanted to, uh, wanted to create this tension. And there are so many other problems to clarify here. For example, to understand the so-called terrorist attacks. And they claim, oh, uh, this is why refugees are a threat and so on and so on. But practically all, if one is to believe the big media, which I doubt more and more, practically all the terrorists are second generation immigrants whose parents were already fully integrated. So this is why it's so stupid when liberals are saying we have to uh, enable refugees to get integrated. Obviously, there was something deeply wrong with the type of integration offered to them. Because again, what is all the terrorists come from well-integrated families, and this is their rebellion against their integrated uh, parents and so on and so on. There are, so again, to uh, answer your question, just a general answer instead, I will have another lecture. You know what's so crucial? I don't like it if we put it in these terms, conflict or collaboration of cultures and so on. We will never find unity at this level. I claim our starting point should be this one. We in our societies have our struggles, political progressive struggles. They have their struggles. The only unity that I see is the unity of a struggle. And didn't this happen illusory as it was? Do you remember uh, Tahrir Square in Egypt? We immediately knew they are, we are on the same side when they were protesting against Mubarak. 
We didn't need any of these, uh, any of these uh, uh, cultural theory explanations, but how do we know that they mean the same thing as me when they use these words and so on and so on. <coughs> so, solidarity is the solidarity of struggle. If we abstract of the struggle, if we don't make our struggles the moment of the same struggle. For example, what does this mean concretely? I'm involved in another polemic. What goes now on the West Bank? Uh, uh, Palestine. It's an important movement among Palestinians themselves against so-called honor killings and so on and so on. They see very well that it's not simply Israel is a secular progressive country. I think incidentally Israel is now becoming one of the most fundamentalist religious countries that you can imagine. But okay, it's not that we have secular Israel and then primitive Palestinians. No, not only is the struggle going on among Palestinians, but you can see it clearly how Israel is discreetly helping conservatives. Not really. For example, when you have honor killings, I was told by my friends, Israeli police or controlled, Palestinian police controlled by Israel, they don't really even investigate, they tolerate that. Why? Now we come to the crucial point. Uh, to my point against uh, 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 about coincidence between conservative national identities and global capitalism and so on and so on. Listen, this was the strategy of colonialism from the very beginning. Colonialism didn't say you should all be kind like ourselves and eat hamburgers, whatever. Colonialism was always, it's much easier to control them by allowing them their own traditional uh, 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 culture. In India, for example, one of the most terrifying books of all times for me, The Loss of Man, which uh, prescribes in detail caste system. You know what I learned from my Indian friends? Before British colonization, this book was half forgotten. It was literally resuscitated by the British colonizers to give a stable traditional system to those that they want to colonize. So again, to cut short, otherwise I will get lost, my point is find the same struggle. This is the only solidarity. And all these other questions about, these are what I ironically refer to as UNESCO questions, you know. All of humanity is one wonderful family where each has its own struggle. No. Solidarity must be solidarity of struggles. This is the only actual universality today. I agree with you on the return to tradition in our time seems to complement global capitalism as evidenced by Modi being a Hindu nationalist and a neoliberal, but it seems like there are some movements trying to do it like on the left, uh, differently, like the Kurdish struggle in Rojava, they're trying to find a way to mediate a return to cultural traditions while also not giving up on emancipatory projects. And in a certain sense, it's almost like an embedded tradition because they take progressive aspects of their old culture and throw away the bad ones. So what's your opinion on the Rojava revolution and the Kurdish struggle in that respect? Uh, no, no. First, let me be very clear here. I know how careful one has to be with universalism. If you simply oppose universalism to local traditions, then you tend to forget how 
every concrete universalism is, as a rule, colored by a certain local tradition. Which is why I'm not saying to blacks, forget about your roots, uh, endorse, assume our universalism. My model here is, I mean it with a little bit of irony, but not really. What the independent Haiti did in 1804, when they published their, endorsed their constitution, they wanted to be, on the one hand, uh, they wanted to be a black state, but at the same time, they wanted to be open to all who helped them, even if they were white, like, you know, the Polish Napoleon soldiers were crucial, they changed. So, you know what paragraph you find literally, I will quote it almost literally, in Haiti Constitution, that Haiti is a black republic. All citizens of Haiti, independently of the color of their skin, are black. I find this totally Okay, it's a trick, but it's a totally correct problem. The problem is that if you don't add this, then your universalism will remain. And it's the same with Kurds. I have connections with them. Incidentally, my trip was already planned to go. What, what town do they have in northern Syria? In northern Syria, not in Iraq, because I know everything about that politics, more or less. The Iraqi Kurds are more CIA-oriented, American. Why? The, the three enclaves they have, the Kurds in northern Syria, are much more progressive, and they already have a small university there, they teach classes and so on, but because of this last round of Turkish terror, I had to cancel it. So I would say, uh, again, I'm not saying they should erase, but the way they refer to their tradition is that you put it nice. It's precisely they reinterpret through modernity. They are, everybody knows this in Turkey. Kurds are not some primitive superstitious minority. They are, you know how nicely secular, this was my experience. Go to a Kurdish restaurant in Istanbul and do something superstitious like ask for a coffee to read your destiny, they will throw you out, I witness this. They say, no, sorry, this is for you Muslims, we are not superstitious, you know it. They are, they are the most, they are not a primitive, man. they are the most secular, the most progressive uh, ethnic group there. Which is why, and again, it's so sad what is happening to them, and people are telling me, but they manipulate one, conflict against the other. Fuck you, what should have done? Of course they are doing it. They have to survive. It's even, it's very interesting to follow their leader, uh, Ocalan, who is now in prison. But you know that in prison he started to read Foucault Agamben and he took a strong turn towards uh, feminism. So that now it's wonderful. Explicit feminism is part of the PKK whatever country, though he's a weird guy. To add, and then I will stop talking, a very amusing detail. You know what happened to me in Turkey? This happened a couple of years ago when Ocalan already was allowed to read Turkish newspapers. A Turkish newspaper asked me a couple of questions, which are stupid, provocative, so I gave provocative answers. <laughs> like one question was, what would be the ideal situation in which you would like to find yourself? Okay, I said, uh, naked in bed with a beautiful girl and debating with her philosophy. No? <laughs> <laughs> but 
But then, two days later, it's not a joke, Ocalan from prison wrote a letter to that newspaper claiming, I agree with philosopher Zizek, I would also like to be in that position. I mean, it's, uh, it's, what I'm saying is that, of course, this is a dirty joke, but what I'm really saying is that don't take Kurds as just some ethnic minority there. there. This is important, not to abandon your particular struggles, but to, to give them the right universalist emancipatory which Because, you know, it can also be the opposite. We should never forget that in South Africa, apartheid South Africa, uh, those who were for separate development, let's not meet with blacks, were Butelesi, were the ones who were directly paid by the apartheid people. I was horrified. This was one of my basic experiences. I remember when there was still apartheid, somebody gave me an official brochure defending apartheid. It was incredible. It said something like, listen, if we simply in, uh, open universal equality democracy, what would have happened with all those wonderful ancient cultures like Bushman, Hottentot, etc.? They would all become vulgar materialist, technological oriented, consumerist, like... Uh, I mean, this was always neo-colonialism at its best. Sustaining racism with extremely respectful elevation of the spirituality of the other. Every self-respecting British colonialist in India was always ready to say, my God, we are so vulgar, we from the West. We are just care about material goods. I remember one of the most brutal butchers in India, British general, at the same time wrote something like, when I see an ordinary poor Hindu saint, I feel so poor compared to him, you know. There is infinitely more wisdom in him. That's no problem. To Part of the neo-colonialist game today is to immediately, before you even ask for it, to admit the spiritual superiority of the other, the colonized. This question is about political correctness and the dismantlement of the left. Uh, one of the vital, most vital component, components of a vital left would be, say, an anti-war movement. We don't have that anymore in America. And the conspiracy theorist in me says that the push a few years back to allow gays in the military and women in combat roles somehow was a cynical push by the ruling class in order to sort of neutralize the two last remaining groups who could be counted on to be anti-war. How can you protest to be included in war and then the next week protest against war. And so essentially, the last two groups were swiped away and somehow uh, the, the question I'm asking is, when politically correctness reared its ugly head, say, 30 years ago in a big way in this country, it was almost re reviled by the intellectual intelligentsia, say, of the left and of the right, but especially on the left. Nowadays, we see more and more in its grip can, can this be used by the ruling power structures essentially to use like tools of like equality or non-judgmentalism to completely disempower the left actually? This is, I know, very hot topic. I may say something wrong and so on, but you know, first let me make some things clear. When I criticize political correctness and multiculturalism, of course I, I am for multiculturalism in the sense of uh, in the sense of uh, 
tolerance, coexistence of different cultures. Of course, I am for political correctness in the sense of not humiliating others verbally and so on and so on. But I think there is also another dimension here. What interests me is how, even when political correctness is apparently progressive, how you can see the ideological twist in it. For example, one observation that I always like to make is how almost, I've written about this a lot, almost automatically today, the topic of racism or ethnic hatred is interpreted as, translated into the topic of tolerance. And I oppose this, this make a simple test. Go through, Google down all the speeches of a text of uh, Martin Luther King, you will look in vain, almost he never mentions tolerance. His demand would never have been that blacks, whites should tolerate us more, black or white. For him the problem is not tolerance, because by, by, by formulating it as a matter of tolerance, you first in a subtle way culturalize it. You know, all of a sudden the problem is not economic exploitation, political rights. The problem is, why don't we tolerate blacks? Is it that we project our traumas on them, so, like, look deep into yourself and so on? It all becomes this kind of very fishy cultural problem. That's my first. The second problem, even more, for example, I always had a problem with... Sorry, I always had a problem with harassment. It, of course I'm against harassment, we're dealing with real harassment. But did you notice how often harassment even had this clear class edge against so-called lower classes? I claim that the way, at least in academic circles, fear of harassment works is, let's not allow those who are vulgar and dirty to come too close to us. And I am ready to problematize, although I don't smoke, I hate smoking companies, but I claim it's even something wrong with this obsession of the danger of smoking. I am opposed to smoking, I don't smoke, but this absolute fear, my God, what they're doing, just smoking and so on and so on. There is something uh, suspicious in the sense of harassment almost is for me Fear of harassment is a form of intolerance. It really means neighbor should stay at the proper distance. You know what is the fact of harassment today? Spike Lee, in one of his movies, makes fun of this how. Typical white men today, they are of course anti-racism, but then they say, but nonetheless, why do the blacks have to shout so loudly? Why do they play that stupid music all the time? That's where they feel harassed and so on. We are again at the level of everyday racism. Today, every self-respectful liberal is of course against racism. But nonetheless, the other should stay at the proper distance. And I went, I go here so far. Now another reason for you to hate me. I even claim that, don't laugh or shout, that racist jokes can play here a moderately progressive role. Because, listen, let's say I'm from one race, you are from another country, whatever. How do we really communicate with each other? We can play this 
multicultural games. Oh my God, what interesting food you have, what wonderful songs, that's bullshit. Real communication enters when, you tell me a dirty joke, when we exchange obscenities. I claim, and I can give you wonderful example from my own country, I always repeat it. In Yugoslavia X, there was no racism, and this pact was in a wonderful way enacted through racist jokes the way they functioned. There were not jokes against the other, but the, when I met a Serb, a Montenegro, a Bosnian friend, each of our nations was identified with a certain racist cliché. We Slovenes were misers, Montenegros were lazy, Bosnians are sex-obsessed, and so on and so on. And the point was not this stupid game of, oh, we are not that cliché, we are much more a uh, rich personality. The point was to gladly, ironically, assume this identity and make fun of it. So it was a kind of a wonderful competition, like, I told a joke against Slovenes, they, you know, but through this exchange of obscenities, a wonderful solidarity established itself. And it's, I have even approved that these jokes played a wonderful role. The moment in the early 80s that real racist hatred emerged in ex-Yugoslavia, these jokes disappeared instantly. Don't, don't, uh, don't underestimate the way, it's not just you make jokes because life is easy. No, sometimes obscene humor is the only way to survive a really terrifying situation. For example, you remember the city of Srebrenica where there was a big slaughter, practically all of them were killed. Now I have a Bosnian linguist, a friend, who is doing social linguistics, research there. And he told me something wonderful, that among the survivors of Srebrenica, jokes are now exploding about their own predicament. Extremely dirty jokes, like, uh, maybe you know it, I'm sorry for myself, a Bosnian guy who emigrated to Germany returns to Srebrenica and wants to buy a parcel to build a house there, no? And he asks, what's the price now there for uh, space? to build a house, you just should know something. In old Yugoslavia and before, when you buy meat, when you, did, when you bought meat, usually the butcher asked you, with or without bones. Because usually people were cooking soup, cooking meat in water, and uh, uh, the soup has better taste if you throw in some bones, no? That's the joke. Okay, so the joke is this one. This guy asked, okay, what's the price of piece of land, and the answer is, well, because you know, Srebrenica is full of buried people, bones. Ah, do you want, do you want it with or without bones? So, this is not making fun. The point is that it's still, for them, so traumatic that that's the only way to deal with it. It's too comfortable to say, oh, they suffer, we are all from Srebrenica, and so on. No, they have to live with it, and sometimes, through obscene jokes, is the only way to do it. Sorry, I talk too much. Hi, Professor Zizid. My name is Shahid Kamreb, and I'm a secretary general of Pakistan, USA Freedom Forum. Yeah. Uh, you see that we are open to listen to anybody, even the character like you, like a Saturday night, like Professor. It's wonderful. What do you mean by Saturday Night Live? The way I speak popularly or what? 
For over two years now, I didn't appear in New York Times. I learned from my spy there. It was, I don't know which Israeli lobby or which one, but it was, now I'm even excluded. You know, I'm a good Stalinist guy. It's always good to have spies in different <laughs> committees where they tell you, now I'm excluded from New York Times, I don't care about that. Then I'm excluded, maybe you have noticed it, a much weirder exclusion. From London Review of Books, now I'm for a year and a half excluded from The Guardian, and so on and so on. Why so, the London Review? Sorry? Why the London Review? I don't know. I only know that many texts which I then published elsewhere with the great echo was first sent to them, and I immediately got an answer which was ridiculously artificial, like, you know, because I was often an editor, and I know how you get rid of the people. Oh, sorry, the last issue just went into press, now we don't have time. Oh, sorry, we already have another uh, text on this. I claim it's maybe the tension, this is my hypothesis, that is between me and some great old man, Tariq Ali and so on, of the uh, British left. I, if it's not this, I cannot explain it, because, again, my spies are good spies. I really get confidential stuff. I get private emails from those people. So I'm not bluffing. What is happening with The Guardian, I think it's a mixture. On the one hand, there was, uh, around a year ago, right-wing coup d'etat, masked, of course, as always, through pure commercial concerns. They said, too many political comments, we should have more comments about lifestyle and so on. So the only invitation that I got from Guardian is, what is the meaning of your beard? What does it mean to you? No? They much prefer for me to write about that. No, I mean, what I'm saying here is that, you know, we have at some formal level freedom of press, you can say what you want, but the system works so magnificently how to keep things marginalized. Like, for example, old story by Edward Said. How rarely do you find in our big media a very simple thing, a precise map of the West Bank with clear delimitation. What is the Palestinians really control? Where are the settlements? And so on and so on. The moment you see that, you know it's over. There will never be if there is not some more radical change, uh, West Bank, Palestinian state, and so on and so on. So you know, the trick is not that we don't learn things. One thing is if something is available somewhere there, but it's important what becomes part of, how should I put it, the public space, common doctrine. And there it's maybe even more controlled than ever, I claim. Even my friend, a Jewish friend, Udi Alor, he made recently an analysis, for example, how the media reported, uh, there was one text in New York Times where they reported about the violence on the West Bank. And it was officially an uh, equal distance text, deploring all violence. But it has a sentence like this. It was, that it was a tragic month. Uh, uh, 30 Palestinians were killed and 10 Israelis were
were murdered. You know this? The different verb and so on. I mean, it's incredible, but you cannot imagine the tight control. Udi Alvin told me that when he invited the Palestinian Freedom Theater group to New York, they asked him for his self-presentation. And he said, Udi Aloni, author of the book, What Does the Jew Want on, uh, how do you call that, the, uh, multiple states, what's the term for one state with two nations? Bi two states. Arguments for binational state. They told him clearly, the word binational should not even be mentioned. They told him clearly, if he doesn't drop the title of his book, not any argument, the whole report about that Kenyan Freedom Theater, and it was a big text, more than half a page of New York Times, will not appear. So just be aware, you know, how tightly we are controlled, but on the other hand, you know, the situation is not as hopeless as it may appear, because, you know, precisely the more things are tightly controlled, the more those in power get in panic and in a more easy way they are wounded. That's the beauty of censorship. That's my experience from my youth in communist Yugoslavia. You know, like, uh, once we published in some small half-dissident journal a poem, which was totally apolitical, but one line, who are the true fathers of our freedom, could be read as between the lines a dissident. It's something incredible happened. This issue of our journal appeared two months before this incident. Nobody took care. The issue was forgotten. Then, at some point, some high member of Central Committee attacked us. You see the paradox? Nothing would have happened if they were just remain silent. But by, by attacking us, um, some people even claim that maybe we solicited that, because it helped us immensely. Everybody was talking about us and so on and so on. So, uh, in a way, we should, these tough conditions, can be used in a perfect way, because the more our enemy controls the public space, the more it is vulnerable. And you know what, on the other hand, you know what's my argument against one of the critiques against me, that, oh, I appear to be a Marxist, whatever, but really I am a right-wing nationalist, whatever, fascist, well, say this to Slovene fascism, who threaten me all the time to be me. But what I want to say is this, it's a wrong, approach, because people think that you are doing one thing publicly and then secretly you are something else. No, in intellectual life, the only thing that matters is what you do or say publicly. What you think privately, I don't care. I don't want sincerity, I don't want, because I claim that, again, that was the point of my, uh, my notion about poetry and so on and so on. People are incredibly inventive in constructing narratives to themselves which justify the horrible things they are doing. So you shouldn't ask, what am I really? Okay, I totally accept if you say what you do publicly has this ambiguity. I accept in principle as a procedure that type of criticism. But not, you are not really that. I really am what I write. 
I privately think something else, so much the worse for me, because what matters is what I do publicly, not privately. Thank you. Um, I'd like to address the organizers of this conference, please. Um, so he was talking about racist jokes earlier and how that is good to build rapport with people, um, but he used a different ending to that. I'm sorry, can I have the back? Why? Because that's just like... Okay. I'm just going to finish off what he was saying in a different audience, right? So he was saying... Um, we were very friendly already, but not really. But then I risked and told him, it's a horrible thing, I warn you. Is it true that you blacks, you know, have a big penis, no? But that would... I'm sorry, do you want to stop? This is who you invited here. Oh, go for it. So I'm finishing up what he said. Uh, is it true that you blacks, you know, have a big penis? No. But that you can even work it so that if you have it on your leg, above your knee, and a fly, you can pop, smash it. Okay, okay. No. I don't know the quote. organizers that given his racist statements, given his misogynist statements, given his most recent statements against the refugees in Europe, how much money was it that you guys paid for him to come here, and why is it that you want to bring this kind of discourse to left? I'd like to speak to that, actually, um, because I looked at, and a number of us looked at all of the things that critics were talking about, and I have to say, I think that there's certain... And listen, I, I think you're clear that there's a lot of provocation in the things that you're saying. You say things to be provocative, but... Like the N-word? Uh, yeah, we okay. We should be able to say that when people accept us. I think... Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. I want to say something. I think there's a subtlety that the critiques are missing and that has animated this entire conversation so far and should continue to animate it. It's been at a really cool level and it's just... This is just not, it, 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 you're, it, this kind of critique takes things out of context and misses the subtlety. So what context is it okay to say the end What context is it okay to say those things? Don't read his quotes out of context. What context is it okay to say that? You read the book, you know the context. You know the context. What about that context changes? You know the context. I've spoken with doctors who are dealing with 
victims of rape in, uh, in uh, the Balkan war in the early 90s. The fact is this one that, of course, when women are extremely vulnerable, traumatized, and they report on their experience, of course, they get caught into inconsistencies as a rule and so on. My point is exactly that. The fact that, of course, the woman is traumatized, or a man, that if you don't get a perfect, cold, objective narrative, that you should not hold this against the woman. Because when you are... The, this is all I mean, that the, the, the traumatic impact is demonstrated through the very fact that you are caught into it, that you cannot report on it objectively and so on and so on. That's where, where anti-feminism is here, I don't see. Above all, Zizek explains that opening our hearts to welcome from imperial world will make things worse for the refugees, that we should not just enlighten them, that, that we should live together with the idea is not that we should, but rather, sorry, this is again, first, I opening our hearts to welcome refugees. This is, for me, total stupidity to say in Europe, because you see sentimentalization. Sorry, it's not a matter of hearts. What are you talking about? It's a matter of their human, of their basic rights, if you love them or not. That's my point. Sorry, there are people like us. Ah, you mean if they are not nice, they shouldn't come? What? No, everybody should come. That's my point. No, they don't need opening our fucking hearts. They need concrete help, my God. And much more than just opening Europe, I repeat this in my book, this double, double blackmail. They need Europe to stop doing interventions in neo-colonial exploitation, which is the true source. Without doing that, this is what humanitarians like. It's not a problem what we are doing. Now we have refugees. We should open our hearts and everything will be okay. What? That millions will come from Syria and then everything will be okay. No, it's not that we should leave this to later. Of course we should also do today. Much on a much larger scale humanitarian help. But what I'm saying is, and this is the example I give, what is happening in Africa? Beneath all this apparent ethnic hatred struggles, it's usually Western companies and so on behind it. For example, Congo. It's not a heart of darkness in the sense of being excluded from international community. There, is, there are few countries in the world more included, more included into international market than today's Congo. It's a totally ruined country. The best, that's the tragic news. The best thing that could have happened to Congo is, with a magic trick, all their mineral wealth disappears. They would be purer, but I can guarantee you all the terror, the nightmare would have stopped, and so on and so on. <laughs> so, what I say is this. Instead of asking these more fundamental questions, is this transformation into a problem of opening 
opening our hearts and so on and so on. No, again, they don't need our sympathy. They need concrete acts from us, A, to help them materially now, and especially B, to change the situation. And here I think we should ask also unpleasant questions. For example, for example, uh, uh, what about Saudi Arabia? Why, I don't mean this in this simple sense, we should not receive that Saudi Arabia should, but listen, isn't this a deep symptom of Saudi, just south of the war area of Iraq, Syria? We have a couple of extremely rich Arab countries, South, let's name them, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar and Iraq, which simply don't accept refugees. And they are total allies of the West. The greatest abomination is for me Saudi Arabia, which is at the same time religious, is okay, pretends to be fundamentalist religious country, but it's really a big mafia financial family. The model for Saudi Arabia is a large family, family with the king, as how you call it, capo, 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 or whatever, you know, like we should, this is what makes me nervous. All the problem is now on Europe, are you open enough and so on, but what about all that goes around? When will we start to change that? Ah, let's go on, this is uh, the best one, on. Ah, this is wonderful, this discusses Boko Haram. Now you will say, if you are a racist, I note here at least you will say, oh, those stupid niggers. So, but I don't believe it. Is it not clear that I here imitate what a racist would have said? Now you will say, if you are a racist, and then comes, so I'm mocking, the races. About that example, uh, that example from radio, probably true, I don't deny it. This was an extreme example, yes, but I still like that example, that about, you know, you blacks, don't you, your penis, and so on and so on. It was consciously an extremely dirty joke, and all I can tell you is, Maybe it's problematic for you. It, not only it was not problematic, I will not name him, for the guy, Black, with whom I was talking, his reaction was that he embraced me and told me, now you can call me a nigger. Uh -huh. And then he explained to me, this means I truly accept you, and so on and so on. Sorry, it was an extreme example. The only thing I can absolutely guarantee you is that it didn't bother him because I will rather not go into how it was extreme vulgarity, I admit it, how the conversation went on then, which was, you should have heard him then, the black guy, what he told, and so on and so on. You may find it, you may find it problematic ethically. You don't talk about that. I allow you to say this. What I'm saying is that if there ever was a moment of non-racism, it was that one. Because that's, that's precisely the strength of racism is not, we don't use the N-word. No, this is your white liberal anti-racism. That you just
but in such a way that it will be clear to everyone, including, especially, to the one you are talking to, that you don't mean it, that you, it's not at all in that, in that sense. And that's my problem with this cleansing of language. Like, you know, torture becomes, torture becomes enhanced interrogation technique. I can guarantee you, soon, rape will become enhanced seduction technique. I mean, uh, the, the, sorry, I talk too much, but again, I totally defend this. I claim that that's how you, you may find it problematic or whatever, but certainly it is not in any sense racist. A usually politically correct guy who uses all the correct terms, you know, uh, African-Americans and so on, whatever, never black, is as a rule, the way I know them, much more racist. I know most of them who attack me for being politically incorrect, and then I see when they meet a black guy who is not part of their excluded uh, uh, academic domain, you can see they, they simply, they don't communicate. It's, it's another world. Are they, I always ask people who are bothered by this, are they ready? Let me give you another example, which is even more brutal, but I love it. I was in a car with a guy, taxi driver, who I later learned was part of that, uh, how is it called, Naxalit, the communist guerrilla. And he heard me talking with my publisher in English and got it that we talk about politics. So, he turned through my for as a translator my publisher and told me, I will show you a picture of Gandhi. Can you tell me what is your association with this picture? It was the well-known picture of late Gandhi with the big stick and unique walking from one city to another. Now, this was an ordinary guy, so I knew exactly what he wanted. Because, you know, that's big news for you. Poor, untouchable in India, they hate us. Gandhi's upper-class stuff. Why? Gandhi did say to, to untouchables, you are also children of God. But this is a proper fascist solution. Like, also you, the poor, for every caste there is a proper place. It was this fascist. Okay. Uh, I knew he wanted for me something extremely obscene. And, okay, with my dirty mind, I guessed it. I told him, he's approaching a village, this big stick is a call there, Get ready for a boy there to fuck me in my ass. If not, I will have to fuck myself with this stick. He stopped the car, the guy stopped the taxi, went to me, embraced me, and said, now we can talk. And then we talked for three hours, not many sovereign exchange of dirty jokes. We talk about very serious politics, but you see, that extremely vulgar remark, but sorry, I was among ordinary people, and obviously I am one among them, what worked wonderfully as an icebreaker. You use this term, no? Icebreaker, yes. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not that fat attraction. It's not the basic instinct, icebreaker, no, it's the yeah, yeah. The good guy, yeah. No, what I'm saying is that you see what I meant. He wanted the, this ordinary taxi driver, he wanted for me 
only a confirmation that I am not some kind of a white snob or whatever. And again, that's the important thing. It wasn't an opening to male chauvinism or whatever, or homophobia or whatever. No, we, we, after that point, our conversation was extremely polite and so on, and I was surprised by the political wisdom of that guy. But obviously, he needed this kind of a obscene exchange as a...
I can always say to myself, yeah, because that guy was lucky, you know, and so on. That just capitalism. Capitalism where only those who really work hardly would become rich, would explode immediately, would be narcissistically intolerant. So it's a very, it's a nice insight. And I think that uh, this is one big mistake. It's a crucial question today, and people are so sure. For example, David Carr. I love him. Let them kick us out. Both. Both of these nuts. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 but I don't get a theory about uh, it. I mean, yeah, sorry, sorry. Thank you. No, no, you know, I, live in, I, I live in my own world. Thank you I read much. books about Hegel, I watch old movies, I download them, probably I should be ten times arrested. Or... <laughs> about what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know that too. I don't get it. I haven't seen one of the films with myself. Perfect guide, none of them. Why? No, I, I, sorry, immediately. I, uh, I look at it for five seconds, and when I see myself with all my personal tics and so on, I, I, I just I get disgusted. You too. <laughs> Now I will be again right, accused ask your question now. now I will again, sorry, uh, sorry, sorry, please. Saturday. Yeah? But when you talked, you didn't mention, you mentioned Foucault and Agamemnon, but you didn't mention who Ajalan says is most important. Who, who, no. This guy, Murray Bookchin. And so I'm going to give you this book as a gift, he's my father. And, um, oh my God! Yeah, really? You know him? Have you ever heard the name? No, I've heard, Bookchin? but I haven't. Heard. Oh my God! Yes. What? Uh, uh, can I ask you a racist question? I will be accused. What? What nationality is this? Russian. Ah, it's Russian. Yeah, yeah. Russian. Ah. Can you put it together? Ah, thanks very much. Yes. <laughs> Do you agree on one point? That's my test of all Russians. <laughs> Gulag. I hate Solzhenitsyn, Varlam Shalamo, Kolima is the real one. Book on Gulag. Solzhenitsyn is sentimental, blah, blah, blah. Varlam Shalamo of Kolina, Kolima is, is the real book, The Horror of Gulag. I think... Do you want me to agree with you on that? <laughs> uh, okay, now I'll put it in my totalitarian way. I give you complete freedom to agree with me. <laughs> No, I have to run. Let's take it out on the street. Let's take it out on the street. <laughs> we don't have to disperse. We may have to leave, but we don't That difference is everything. Use the use the lived experience. Change the lived experience. No, because I'm there. I receive an invoice. Ambed card. It's much better. Yeah. Oh, I'm